astute enough. I'm your interim pastor, Mike Sherritt, and a special welcome to those of you joining us through the live stream. We have started a little series, largely in 1 Peter chapter 5, called A Shepherding Community. It's basically a sermon series on humility, so get used to it. Um, if you don't want to hear about humility, you probably need to come extra much. Here's our text, these breathtakingly helpful verses from 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. In my 40 years of doing ministry, I have seen Christian relationships Christian marriages, Christian churches, and Christian institutions crash and burn. And when I walk amidst the wreckage, I see plenty of pride and virtually no humility. And this is why Peter is exhorting all of us to humility in this passage. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humble yourselves, all of you. Because he is reflecting God's heart for healthy leadership and vital, thriving body life. You can't have either without humility. And I actually pray for many of you and my family and ministry leaders all across the country and the world. And I never fail when I pray to pray that their hearts would be in the grip of God's mercy, producing humble, other-centered servanthood and worship of God because... That is everyone's greatest human need, humility and worship. 
So this text is going to help us answer three simple questions. Number one, what is humility? I'll make two points about it. First, humility is the mind of other-centeredness. It's a way of thinking. The, the quintessential passage on humility, I think uh, referred to in Josiah's prayer, yes, earlier, is from Philippians 2, where Paul exhorts all of us to do this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. So you've got to check your motives. Is what I'm doing, thinking, or saying relating to this person? Is it a competition? Do I have something to prove? That's a rivalry. I need to trump you in something. Or conceit. Prove I'm better than you. Do nothing from those two motives. Nothing. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Have this mind which, is, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying humility organically comes from a heart under the Spirit's control, producing Christ's way of doing relationship, humble, other-centered servanthood, where your interests become more important than mine. Does this sound hard to do? It better. Or you're not taking it seriously. This is unbelievably difficult to pull off. We're not innately hungry. Unlike my appetite for food, nobody needs to tell me get up and go eat. I just go eat when I'm hungry. Unlike that, I have no innate appetite for humility. And a simple survey of the biblical teaching on this is, is simply this sad, tragic reality. What most beautifies us, humility we least desire, and what most soils our hearts, pride, we least detect. That's a frightful state of affairs for a human heart to be in. Thank God there's hope and truth in God's word for this. So as I think about this, what's the core reason we fail to grasp, we, 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 uh, we, we, we don't grasp our pride, nor are we humble? I think one way to put it is we don't come to grips with what we deserve. So I want you to think of humility and pride in contrast to each other. Humility and pride are spectacles that you wear on your heart through which you interpret Everything in your life, everything, the use of your money, your sexuality, your relationships, your work, your time, every, you interpret everything in your life through some lens. The humility lens is comprised of mercy and grace. Mercy, God has not given me what I deserve. Oh my goodness. If I got justice from God, I would be immediately and severely judged. Mercy. God has not given you what you deserve. Grace. God has given you far more than you deserve. Far, 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 far more. That's the humility lens. In contrast to the pride lens. 
Pride views everything through the deserving and demanding lens. The deserving lens interprets everything according to this impression, not a fact. Impression. I've, I, uh, I deserve better than I have. And the demanding lens, this impulse, I want to get everything I think I need. It's not hard to imagine how those two perspectives color your relationships. They profoundly affect your relationship. And because you and I are hardwired by sin for self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-protection, the humble heart wants to become aware of how we impact others. You can't look out for other people's interests without determining what those interests are. So the humble heart wants to know, how do you experience me? How do I impact you? Pride and humility have very different ways of pulling that off. It's interesting that Peter singles out a certain demographic after he talks about elders in this text. Who is it? In verse 5, who is it? You young people. Anybody, who does that qualify? And just raise your hand if that's talking about you. Mark King, last I looked, you're not a young people. So, so that begs the question, why? Why has Peter, in this humility exhortation singled out young people to be subject to the elders. I'm going to guess. They may think they know better than the elders, a presumption of inexperience. You saw Carlton share. How many of you were ready to jump up and run into the office of elder given this man's heart for what he's going through? Probably not many of you. Why does Peter exhort young people? Perhaps they may not want anyone telling them what to do. A haughtiness of autonomy. And they may be tempted to discredit the elders because of their age, a smugness of youth. Regardless, humility is demanding of you to study how people experience you. What is your impact on people? You need to know this. For example... Do people sense you have time to listen to them? Do people experience you as a vacuum of self-concern? Are you always interrupting people? Do you come across as a know-it-all? A conversation starts and all of a sudden your people are experiencing you as, I'm just telling them everything that I know. Or are you even aware of that? There's a wonderful proverb. Imagine that. I'm going to quote Proverbs that says the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That means are you people experiencing you as someone after you've talked with them, they want to come back for more. They have been refreshed. They desire to be in your presence. I could go on and on and on. One last one. Do your words and actions reflect a God who embodies gentleness? Those are some tests for you. So, what is humility? The mind of other-centeredness and the eye of self-critique. This comes from Jesus. 
in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus exposes our natural bent towards pride and uh, self-justification with a startling image. He says, why are you not dealing with a log in your own eye? Logs represent your frailties, your foibles, your faults. Any way that you fail to love God and neighbor, any manifestation of your pride. Jesus asked this in Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own? It's, it's almost comical, isn't it? I can see your speck while looking past my own log. It's very arresting. It's meant to be. So let's take Jesus at face value. Why do you minimize your faults and magnify the faults of others? Why do you? There's something going on in your heart. It's an opportunity. This image is, a, Jesus has created a window into your heart for you to do some serious soul searching. Your critique of other people's sins, they have them. Your temptation to sit in judgment on other people's faults, they have them, becomes an occasion to ask yourself what? Am I as ruthless with myself as I am with others? Are you? Am I more interested in helping them or sitting in judgment condemning them? So think about it. For me to focus on your specs and miss my logs, I can't focus on two points at the same time, right? I must bring your specs into focus and magnify them all the while minimizing my logs. Why would I do that? I must be doing that to make myself feel better about myself. I might have a profound insecurity that I'm not okay in the core of my being, and somehow I'm elevated by putting you down. Who knows what's going on in the heart? But you've got to ask the Spirit to show you. Okay. Seeing other people's specs, Jesus implies, becomes an occasion to ask some soul-searching questions. Where are you lying to yourself about who you are? Just think about that later on today. Have a cheerful, happy day. (laughs) Or ask your spouse. Or your close friends. Could those specs in his eye that irritate me so much actually be reflections of the logs I'm not coming to grips with in my own. That seriously flawed person over there that is so easy to sit in judgment on, could that be me? Could that be me? True confession, beloved. I came to this humility and pride party late. Seriously, it's only been about the last 10 years of my life. So call it age 57, I came to this party. I just turned 67. And this is sad that finally, five and a half decades into my life, I'm beginning to come to serious terms with the fact I'm not as humble as I think. I'm more proud than I know. I need to change more than I know. You don't have to wait till you're 56 to make that realization, beloved. That's why you're hearing this sermon. 
I'm really happy for you. I really am. Let me close this section with a little litany. I've, as I've reflected on this and, and looked at the Bible and looked at my own frailty and experienced the frailty of people around me, I've created a little litany. If you want a copy of it, I'll email it to you later. It's too long to put in the bulletin, but I'll just read it to you. It's just doing the, a contrast between the proud and the humble as a rule, as a rule, as a rule. The humble don't want to be proud. The proud don't want to be humble. As a rule, the humble see their pride and loathe it. The proud see humility and loathe it. The humble don't recognize their humility as a rule. The proud don't recognize their pride as a rule. The humble boast in their weakness. The proud despise their weaknesses. The humble long for what God wants. The proud long for what they want. The humble weigh their impact on others. The proud weigh others' impact on them. The humble sorrow for their lack of gratitude. The proud seek gratitude from others. The humble look to God for help. The proud help themselves. The humble can initiate critical self-evaluation. Do you know what that is? That's when you go to somebody who knows you well and says, tell me what's wrong with me. The humble can initiate that. The proud uh, avoid it and criticize others. The humble grieve over their own faults. The proud obsess over others' faults as a rule. The humble are content to promote others. The proud long to be promoted. The humble see all possessions as a gift. The proud feel entitled to what they have. And finally, the humble know they fare better than they deserve. The proud think they deserve better. Does that make sense? Does that comport with your experience? Was that too much? It's a little litany that I've written. I don't expect you to digest all of that. I'm trying to create pictures for you. Number two. That was the longest point in the sermon. Number two. We are looking at a shepherding community, and what fruit of the Spirit, if it's absent, we will never have it. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Humility. Don't try relationship without humility. You will kill the other person sooner or later. That's what I tell couples in premarriage counseling. We sit down, we start the whole premarriage thing, and I say, rule number one, without humility, you're going to kill each other. And they kind of smile and I go, no, really. Take my word for it. Proud, arrogant, idiot might inflict pain on his wife due to lack of humility. Take my word for it. You can ask her. Number two, what does humility look like? Peter gives you three pictures. I only have time really to talk about one of them. Humility is clothing. Humility is is position. And humility is timing. They all used to be three separate sermons. Now they're crunched into about one and a half pages of notes, 14-point type. There's so much to say about this, so much. Let's look at humility as clothing. Verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. What do you owe everybody in this congregation? Humility, love, putting them ahead of you, esteeming them more significant than yourselves, taking interest in their interests. Clothe yourself. It's a wonderful verb. It referred to a servant 
taking up an apron and tying that apron around their waist. If you're serious about humility, you will put that apron on metaphorically every day of your life. And so think about it. It's a great picture. Where are a servant's eyes fixed by definition? On other people. Servants don't stand around on the cell phones and do this. They have a job to do. Be attentive to the needs of others. Their eyes aren't on themselves. They are other-centered. Man, that will bring about a lot of spiritual oomph in a congregation where everyone is clothed with humility. So the humble person takes joy bringing good to others and resists the tendency to want to be served. Here's a great little definition of humility from Pastor Rick Warren. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that good? That's right. Simple. Easily said, more difficultly pulled off. So you can see humility in, um, in, in, in the way you serve. Somebody once said, you never know you have a humble heart until people start treating you like a servant. Right? The humble heart's attitude is, it is my pleasure to serve Jesus by serving you. Humility can also be seen in whom you're willing to serve. Who is it easier to serve? Somebody more important to you. Some big dignitary walks in the room, I'm falling, what can I do for you? Can I, yeah, I'm going to serve you. Some poor nobody walks in the room, I expect them to serve me. So where do you see the glory of this? In Jesus, John 13, he gets on the ground and washes the disciples' feet, the superior washing and serving the inferior. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Man, put that over the door when you leave the house, and then put the apron on. Notice Paul, Peter calls you towards humility toward one another. So if, if the apron's on, what's your fundamental attitude towards people? Our natural attitude is, what's in this for me? What can you give me? How can you serve me? In so many words, we often operate in life with, what are you doing for me? The servant's just the opposite. How can I serve you? How can I bless you? And beloved... There is a glorious freedom in humility that says this, because Jesus has my back, because I'm a son or a daughter of a living God, richly blessed, as Carlton testified to what Paul calls the unsearchable riches of Christ, because I'm rich, I don't need to demand from you control, approval, or appearing right. If you live basically without crucifying the elder, the, the idol of wanting to be liked, wanting to be right, or wanting to be in control, you have made the relationship about you, and it is no longer love. Love makes it about them. See that? You see that? If not, let's get in my office. We're going to talk about idols till the cows come home. So... So you're thinking about your relationships. Let, let, let's ask a couple more diagnostic questions. What do you like when you don't get your own way? 
if my heart is not filled with the love of God, you don't want to be around. When you're criticized, do you defend? Do you promote yourself? Do you protect yourself? Are you quick to make excuses when you fail? It's just comical when you're out golfing and, and this golfer does this bad putt. The first thing out of the mouth is, oh, the greens are terrible today. No, buddy, you just made a bad putt. Don't blame it on the greens. Just king of excuses. It's hilarious. Okay. Humility is clothing. There's two other pictures. If we were one of those churches that went all day, we'd spend another 30 minutes on each of these, and we're not going to. Humility is position. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's called pulling out all the stops. If Peter had to place you somewhere that forced humility and dealt with pride, where would it be? Under the mighty hand of God. If that doesn't humble you, nothing will. I could say a whole lot more about that. But just consider what the hand of God represents to you. His presence as one guiding you in a dark place. His protection as one dependent upon for security and strength. His providence as one leading you and providing and caring. His perspective as one explaining reality to you so you can see things the way they are. And God's power, the one before, before whom you feel small yet important and fortified, the hand of God. And then the third picture is humility is timing. So that he may exalt you at the proper time. What's implicit in that? We rush to self-exaltation. We take praise before it's due. You see this with athletes who stand up and go, I'm the best sprinter in the world. You might be, buddy. It's not for you to determine that, though. We determine that. Does that irk you as much as it irks me? I'm the best such and such in the world. Shut up. <laughs> you see, that obviously pushes a button in my heart some sin I'm not dealing with. Last thing, and here we close. I got more to say about this text. What humbles the proud heart? Well, you have a key there in verse 5. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I'm going I'm to address that in more detail in two weeks, so hang on. It's a very important, I'm not going to skip over it. But what's his point here? At least this. We won't be humble toward one another until we're humble towards, you tell me, God. So I hope you're wondering, what can humble a proud heart? Only meeting Jesus in his humility. Only meeting Jesus in his humility. Jesus' humility. His heart lay in the grip of his father's glory, joyfully submitted to his will. This is God the Son, joyfully submitted to his father's will. Jesus voluntarily set aside some of the prerogatives of his glory to come to earth as a man. Jesus felt no compulsion to assert or promote himself. Jesus feared no man, flattered no one, needed no one's approval. Jesus felt no need to abuse his unlimited power and control. Jesus 
endured hideous injustices not demanding his rights. Jesus suffered unwarranted scorn, derision, mocking, and ridicule at his arrest and crucifixion. Jesus loved the unlovely, accepted the unacceptable, and embraced the filthy. Beloved, self-exaltation can be subdued, but not by the self. The self is the problem, right? We're self-exalting. And so you must become you must become rich by admitting your poverty, the very thing the proud won't do. You become rich by admitting your poverty. Put it this way. You need to fall in, if you're going to be humble, you need to fall in love with someone who is so great, they will humble you. And so humble, they will melt away your self-consumption. That's Jesus. And one of the ways he invites us is, come unto me, Matthew 11, all you who are weak and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you, I will refresh you, for my heart is gentle and humble. That's the heart of God for us broken sinners. Only Jesus can humble a proud heart, and ultimately, beloved, he does it by bringing us to his cross. And at the cross, we see so many mysterious, holy ironies ironies. What appeared to be a criminal's gruesome death actually secured glorious eternal life. Ironically, God opposed his son so the proud can be clean. Ironically, the prince of peace went to war against your sins. Ironically, the only truly holy man to ever live became filthy sin on the cross for your salvation. Ironically, Jesus took all his power and used it to become weak. The God who blesses became a curse on a tree he himself had made. Jesus takes your sin and he exchanges it for his righteousness. You can give him your pride and in exchange he will crown you a son or a daughter of the living God. So ironically, the richest, most blessed, most secure, most peaceful, most joyful people in the world have nothing to prove because of the riches of Christ for them. Do you see, you see the irony? The burning light of the gospel consumes the fog of our self-importance, and it sets you free. So the humble heart becomes the throne of an exalted God. What glory. What glory. Let me pray. Dear name, the rock on which I build, my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. To Jesus be the praise and glory and honor. Amen.